This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's wonderful to see a full house, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Andrew Franklin. I'm your chair. I'm also a trustee um, of the book festival. It gives me enormous pleasure to introduce Michael Frayn, one of Britain's uh, most distinguished and best-known playwrights and novelists. He's going to be talking about Skios, his latest novel, which, as I'm sure you know, is on the uh, Booker long list, uh, which is a great thing for a comic uh, novel because generally the Booker judges are not sympathetic to comic novels and... This is not a particularly um, funny collection of judges this year, is it? So <laughs> they've, done, they've done well. Um, this this uh, author is so distinguished, and when, when chairing events with authors, I, I like to give you a list of the pri- that tell you the prizes they've uh, won, but Michael has won so many prizes that it would take the hour, and I will just say that he's been garnered with every possible award that a writer and a, a playwright can be garnered. Uh, that this is a terrifically entertaining book, and welcome, Michael. Good morning. Um, I was on my way to do the first of the events for this book, when I got a rather disturbing, urgent email from the Society of Authors, who are our trade union. It said, if you're going to do public speaking, you need public liability insurance. (laughs) Well, I'm well aware of the dangers that I face going to these. I might easily fall off the front of the stage and break my neck. But it's never occurred to me that I might do anything so awful to you that you want want to sue me. And I've been worrying about it ever since. What could it be? And all I can think of, suddenly, uh, the cry somebody falls off his chair somewhere, is there a doctor in the house, ambulance people are called, the next thing I know, I'm getting writs uh, for having bored someone to death. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Skios, Um, you go somewhere by air, you arrive at at an airport somewhere, you're on holiday, you're on business, Um, you go through passport control, you collect your bags. what is the first thing you see of the long-awaited new world you're entering? The first thing you see is a line of the local citizens who are gazing expressionlessly at you. Uh, and they're holding up little cards with names on them. Uh, and they're the drivers of taxis and limousines. And they're the representatives of uh, travel tour companies. Um, and they're waiting for their customers. Uh, Well, maybe your name is one of the names they're holding up on the card. Maybe it isn't. Whether it is or not, you know you have an advantage over them because you would recognize your name if you saw it. They obviously would not recognize you or they wouldn't need to hold up a card. They'd just come up to you. Um, Have you ever been tempted I see you have. (laughs) You're a hall full of psychopaths. (laughs) Well, I've certainly been tempted. Every time I've arrived at a strange airport and seen that line of people holding up names, I've thought, supposing I went up to one of them who was holding up a name which is not mine and let him believe that I was his customer, uh, what would happen? What would it be like entering somebody else's life? Um, would I, how would I cope? How far would I get? Well, uh, I would never do it because I'm far too timid and too law-abiding and set in my ways. But a couple of years ago, my wife and I went on holiday on a Greek island, um, and not Skios. Uh, we would have gone to Skios, but unfortunately it hadn't been invented then. Uh, though a number of readers uh, who've uh, seen the book since it came out and told me they know Skios quite well. (laughs) And have spent many holidays there. (laughs) 
Anyway, as we arrived on this island that was not Skios and faced the line of people, for some reason I remembered a friend I'd used to have years ago uh, who was bipolar. And when he was down, he was very, very down. But when he was up, uh, he was as high as a kite. And um, people never knew what he was going to do next. He didn't know what he was going to do next himself. Um, he told me once that um, he'd been walking down Fleet Street in London. He was a journalist. Uh, Slow-moving traffic. And he realized that the car moving beside him was a Rolls Royce with white ribbons on it. Uh, uniform chauffeur at the wheel, behind the uniform chauffeur, um, a bride in bridal dress and a young man in, in a bridal outfit, a morning suit. Um, and they'd obviously just got married. And he realized, although he'd never met them, he realized that what they wanted him to do was to get into the back of the car with them <laughs> and to tell them the story of his life. So that's what he did. <clears throat> and it probably made their day. <laughs> probably somewhere today, there's an elderly couple sitting, celebrating their wedding anniversary, and saying, do you remember that charming young man? <laughs> um, anyway, it occurred to me that if John Gale, as he was called, was, had been arriving on this um, island instead of me, and the thought had come into his head, he certainly would have done it. He would have walked up to the first driver who came, uh, who came to mind and said, this is me. Well, uh, what I should have been doing on this island was thinking about the book I was writing at the time, which was a memoir of my father. But the, the mind is a curiously perverse organ. And I was on holiday, maybe my mind thought it was on holiday as, as well, and instead of thinking about my father and my father's life, I began to think about um, a character who hadn't existed before and an island who hadn't, that hadn't existed before. And the character was someone who was a bit like my bipolar friend, uh, but wasn't him. Um, so my character arrives on the island of Skios. He's a rather charming young man. He looks uh, a bit like uh, Boris Johnson, um, for good reason, because I borrowed some of Boris Johnson's appearance for the character. Um, how far can he get before he's found out when he goes and lets one of the waiting people uh, believe that uh, he is the person they're waiting for? So that's uh, Oliver Fox's problem. That's where the story begins. But now, of course, there's another character who's got a problem. Um, Oliver Fox has... Um, been tempted to do what he's done because he's expecting to go on holiday with a girlfriend and she hasn't turned up and she's going to come a day late and he knows he has a day in hand with nothing to do. Um, he also feels he's rather wasted his life. There's a bit of a chance he's never done anything. And when he looks along the names on the cards, he sees the name uh, Dr. Norman Wilfred and he thinks, that sounds a nice, reliable sort of name. If I was called Dr. Norman Wilfred, I might be leading a much more satisfactory life than the life I am leading. I'd be a country doctor somewhere. And then he looks at the person who's holding up the sign, and it's a rather attractive young lady. And what with one thing and another, and what with being a sort of person who does things that just come into his head anyway, uh, he goes up to her and he lets her believe that he is Dr. Norman Wilfred. Well, now, of course, there's this other person with the problem as well, and that is Dr. Norman Wilfred. <laughs> because he is arriving on the island, expecting to meet, have someone with his name uh, held up. Um, and, of course, he is the real Dr. Norman Wilfred. But his problem is, is, the, is that he is the second claimant to the name. He's a Johnny-come-lately. And as we all know, a possession is nine points of the law. And if someone walked in that door now and said, um, I'm Michael Frayn, <laughs> what would happen? <clears throat> well, I'll tell you what would happen. Um, brutal security men would leap out of the shadows, and the security people at the, at the Edinburgh Festival are particularly brutal. 
and they twist his arm behind his back, and they toss him out into the street. I hope. Um, but it does happen. I was doing one of these events somewhere. One of the questioners at the end said that when he'd been a student, he'd organized um, a concert for a pop singer called Little Richard. Well, I've never heard of Little Richard, but apparently he was very famous. And halfway through the concert, somebody in the audience stood up and said, that is not Little Richard. What happened? Exactly as I said, the security people came out of the shadows, uh, got hold of the protester and tossed him out on the street. Well, 18 months later, they discovered that the protester had been right. <laughs> it hadn't been the real Little Richard. And apparently, the Little Richard management uh, were franchising the identity. <laughs> and there were six Little Richards out on the road. Well, that's one of the nice things about doing these events, is that people tell you things which you can use at later events. And the last event I did, someone came up in the signing queue at the end and said the converse of my story had happened to him. Um, he was an engineer, and he'd been flying to Panama City to work, do something connected with the Panama Canal, some bit of engineering work. And um, he arrived at uh, Panama City, gone through passport control, uh, collected his luggage, and uh, there was a line of drivers outside, and there was one of them uh, with a card saying Panama City Hotel, which was where he was booked in. So he went up to him and was driven to the Panama City Hotel. And it was only when he discovered the Panama City Hotel was a brothel <laughs> that he began to wonder about the whole arrangement. And at this point, it occurred to him that... Um, everyone had seen at the airport had been speaking not Spanish, but English. And he was, in fact, not at Panama City, Panama, but in another Panama City in Florida. <laughs> so it can happen. And, in fact, the story of Little Richard was slightly out-trumped by something I read in The Observer last week. Apparently, a few years ago, the uh, Moscow Philharmonic Orchestra was playing a series of concerts in Hong Kong. Huge success, wonderful reviews, a colossal audience response, 10,000 fans. And the only problem was that the Moscow Philharmonic Orchestra at that moment was playing in Europe. So someone somewhere was franchising complete symphony orchestras. <laughs> well, I've told my publishers Faber about this franchising lark. And they're now franchising Michael Frains. <laughs> and the real Michael Frains in Hong Kong and I'm afraid I'm only number six on the list. <laughs> anyway, that's how the story begins. It's not, of course, the first time that um, the story has turned upon mistaken identity. It was already being done in uh, Greek mythology. The Greek gods were great ones at putting on false identity, particularly Jupiter, who disguised himself very successfully once as a swan and once as a, as a shower of gold. Um, my favorite uh, enterprise of Jupiter's was when he passed himself off as the wife of someone called Amphitryon, so successfully that Amphitryon's wife believed he was Amphitryon and um, allowed him all her, her wifely favors. Um, it's a great staple of classic comedy and farce. Sometimes uh, it occurs by mistake, as in She Stoops to Conquer. And of course, it occurs in real life. Uh, people pass themselves off as people they're not. Spies pass themselves off as, uh, as uh, real citizens. Uh, fraudsters on the internet uh, pretend they're your bank in order to get your bank details from you. Uh, the police give um, informers a new identity. Uh, criminals pass themselves off as policemen, policemen as criminals. Uh, men uh, dress up as women, women dress up as men. And you can change your identity even without changing your name. Uh, my wife, Claire Tomalin, who will be speaking here this afternoon also with uh, Andrew, um, has written a book about Nellie Turnan, who was Dickens's mistress. Well, the astonishing thing for me about the Nellie Turnan story is not the immense efforts that uh, Dickens and his friends uh, took to keep uh, the, the story of the affair secret, because Dickens uh, didn't want to spoil his... Uh, his uh, image as a family writer, 
But what happened after Dickens died? Uh, Nellie Turnland, in order to uh, scotch any rumors that she'd ever been Dickens' mistress, in order to make it impossible that she'd ever been Dickens' mistress, took 10 years off her age so that she would only have been a little girl when Dickens had been around. Um, and her imposture was so successful that only one person ever guessed it, and she was able to uh, become a respectable woman, indeed marry a clergyman. Well, that seems to me more extraordinary than anything that my hero does. Imagine every time uh, any question of the past turns up, whether it's your own past or whether it's the public past, you have to remember whether it's something that happened in those 10 years that no longer exists. Um, well, and life imitates art. As I um, was finishing this book, so Greece was revealed to be not the uh, prosperous country we'd all thought, but uh, an undischarged bankrupt. Um, and the possibility arose that uh, by the time the book came out, the uh, euro, which is referred to in a Greek context several times in the book, wouldn't be the euro anymore. It would be the drachma. And the whole enterprise would have the air of a historical novel. <laughs> well, Faber and I have been pulling strings behind the scenes. <laughs> And so far, we have managed to keep Greece on the euro. <laughs> Whether we can hold on until the paperback comes out next year, I'm not sure. It's strange. Changing your identity can change your complete personality. Um, think how the anonymity of the internet releases aggression in people that they probably never even knew they had until they sat down and began to write some vile review or send some vile message to someone on the internet. Um, there's a wonderful uh, play by uh, the 18th century Danish playwright uh, Ludwig Holberg um, called Masquerade, which um, uh, Nielsen turned into an absolutely delightful opera with wonderful music. And that's about the impact of the masquerade on the masquerade on Danish society in the 18th century. Danish society was extremely straight-laced. And when people started going to public balls where they disguised their identity with masks, uh, it released all kinds of, uh, of uh, feelings in them that they'd never known they had. And everyone, the most respectable people, began to, be, uh, began to have affairs with people who were not their lawful spouses. Or even more embarrassing sometimes, when the mask came off, discovered they were having an affair with their lawful spouse. <laughs> well, we all create characters for ourselves. Um, we do it all the time, sometimes to impress, uh, sometimes uh, just to get on with our friends and do our job. Uh, it's part of our equipment for living in the world. Sometimes we do it quite consciously, and sometimes unconsciously. Do we always know whether we're consciously putting on another persona? Um, this is something that worried me, uh, the whole question of whether we know we're inventing something or whether we um, are telling the truth. When I was writing my last book, A Memoir of My, memoir of my Father, um, I tried to uh, write it as truthfully as I could but afterwards, I began to wonder whether I made the whole thing up, whether there was any truth in it at all. And I was cheered by remembering a wonderful book by Mary McCarthy called Memories of a Catholic Girlhood. And uh, after the first edition came out, she got a lot of letters from people saying, uh, look, I knew your parents, and they were simply not living on that street at that particular time. Or um, you can't have been the age you say you were then because it doesn't fit in with the written record. So she did a wonderful thing. Instead of uh, simply correcting the mistakes, she issued the book again as it was, but with footnotes saying, um, I thought this was what happened, uh, but I now discover um, it wasn't. And I've made every effort to make this book as true as it is, but I simply do not know sometimes whether I am remembering or whether I'm telling the truth. Um, I since discovered since I wrote that book, that there's now a team of neurologists at Cambridge who are trying to discover the neurological difference between remembering something and inventing it. And they've tracked it down to something called the, a bit of the brain called the uh, prefrontal anterior cortex. And in fact, a bit of that called the 
the paracingulate sulcus. And in some people, the pattern of folding in the paracingulate sulcus that most people have doesn't exist, and they really don't know whether they're inventing or whether they're telling the truth. So next time somebody comes up to you in the street and uh, asks, tells you some fantastic story about how they've lost all their money and they just need £14.20 to get back to wherever it is, um, whip out your electrodes and check the state of their paracingulate sulcus. <laughs> Well, there are two differences um, between some of the cases I've been talking about and what my man, Oliver Fox, does. Most people assume um, another identity um, because there's going to be some advantage in it. They're hoping to make a profit out of it or they're hoping to um, uh, escape punishment or something like that. Um, Oliver Fox does it just off the top of his head for no gain at all, apart from the fact he likes to look at the young lady who's holding the, the sign on. Um, well, this happens in life as well. You don't have to be um, bipolar to do something without any particular reason. And if you remember your existentialism, you'll remember that the existentialist said that one of the uh, things that distinguished human beings that uh, identified human beings as having free will was the ability to perform what they called an act gratuit, a gratuitous act, which has no uh, reason for it. Um, other differences are even more uh, fundamental. When people pass themselves off as being somebody else, they usually know who it is they're passing themselves off as. Uh, Oliver Fox has not the faintest idea of who Dr. Norman Wilfred is or what he's like. He has to try and invent the character, try and pick up signals uh, from uh, the people around him. Well, this is the stuff of nightmares. Um, in fact, it's a particular nightmare of actors um, that they're on the stage and they can't remember what play they're in. <laughs> There's a wonderful book by Simon Callow called <coughs> On Being an Actor, and he says that if you're on a long run in the West End, uh, sometimes uh, you, you gradually get to be uh, more and more familiar with the part, you can do it more and more mechanically, and your mind begins to wander during the performance. And then suddenly, seven months into the run or whatever, you're in the middle of the show, you're standing on the stage, and for some reason you come to your senses, and you realize you have not the faintest idea where you are in the play, <laughs> what sort of character you're playing, um, uh, or what play it is. Um, I have a version of this nightmare which is connected with doing this kind of event. Um, and my nightmare, I'm suddenly rushed into a hall full of people like this, and I have not the faintest idea what I'm supposed to be talking about. <laughs> I've incorporated this into the novel, in fact, because what Oliver Fox discovers he is supposed to be doing on this island, as Dr. Norman Wilfred, is giving a learned lecture. <laughs> well, this would worry me, but it doesn't worry Oliver Fox because he has a kind of insane optimism that uh, something will turn up at the last moment. And I guess we probably all have this. I mean, if you did find yourself in front of an audience and not have the faintest idea what you were supposed to be talking about, you would think that something somehow would come to you. And if you fell off a cliff, you would think, until the very last moment when you hit the ground, you'd think somehow you might suddenly grow wings or whatever, and something would happen. Um, well, Oliver's not like me, but um, we do have one thing in common, uh, that we are writing fiction. He's doing it in the real world, and he has particular problems because he's in a real situation. I have other problems because I have other characters, and I have to be them as well. I have to be Dr. Norman Wilfred. Um, I also have to be the young lady who's holding up the sign at the airport, Nikki Hook. Um, how can I possibly believe that this man I'm meeting is really um, Dr. Norman Wilfred. I'm expecting to meet a slightly shop-worn, middle-aged intellectual. And this rather charming young man appears. Um, well, some reviewers have uh, found this stuck in their throat. The New York Times and my wife have both uh, raised uh, questions about <laughs> And the answer is 
that on the whole, you accept people at their face value. How do you know I'm Michael Frayn? Well, you say, I've got a sign on me that says Michael Frayn. But that was given me by someone outside. Um, I was introduced by Andrew Franklin as being like Norman Mosby, <laughs> Michael Frayn. <laughs> This is, this is Edinburgh. You're in Edinburgh. <laughs> but how does he know I'm Michael Frayne? For all you know, he came out to Edinburgh Airport and held up a sign <laughs> with Michael Frayne on it, and I just claimed to be him. Um, you take people on trust. Um, I mean, if he had come to Edinburgh Airport and um, I'd come up to him and he didn't like the look of me, he thought I probably wasn't Michael Frayne, what's he supposed to do? Is he supposed to ask my passport? Is he supposed to um, ask for my fingerprints? Um, some people have said, uh, well, in the age of Google, this could never happen. You Google it, but you don't. How many people here have Googled me to check they're going to be looking at the right person? Have, have you Googled me? No, people don't. You take people on trust. Well, some people here may now be beginning to have their doubts. <laughs> Remember what happened to the man who stood up in the Little Richard concert? It's, um, I read somewhere recently that um, art experts are now having problems because the uh, value of art, works of art is so high uh, and the identity of works of art, the value of the works of art depends on their identity and their identity depends entirely on authentication by an expert. So, of course, for a long time, experts have been getting sued by people for misidentifying pictures. And now people are suing uh, art experts for refusing to identify pictures, because until an art expert has identified it, it doesn't have a value. Uh, and maybe that's why I need the public liability insurance, because <laughs> you've paid five quid or whatever it was to get in and see me, and now I'm refusing to authenticate my own identity. <laughs> I'm going to start getting rich from people. Anyway, quite apart from being introduced, you make assumptions about people. If you'd see me sitting up here in front of you, um, even without being introduced, you would have assumed just from my being here that I'm the person you expected to see. We make assumptions all the time. Um, Michael Gambon, the actor told me that he was once uh, rehearsing a, uh, a television film somewhere in some BBC studios where parking was notoriously difficult. And the first day when he turned out, there wasn't anywhere to park. And as he drove hopelessly around the car park, a man looked in through the windows of the car and said, Mike, it's Mike, isn't it? It's Mike. And Gambon thought, well, it's often very tedious being uh, recognized in public, but sometimes it does have its advantages. So he said, yes, 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 I'm Michael Gambon. The man said, you looking for somewhere to park, Mike? And Michael Gambon said, yes, yes, I am. And the man said, this way, Mike, this way, Mike, I'll find a place for you. So he took him round and he found a space for him. He said, Director General, or whatever. he said, don't worry, park in here, I'll look after it. <laughs> Next day, when he arrived, same man waiting, said, Mike, this way, Mike. <laughs> I'll find your parking space, leave it to me, Mike. And once again, he found a parking space for him. Well, this went on every day of the rehearsal. And then on the last day, when he got out of the car, while he locked the door of the car, he put the script of the, uh, of the film they were rehearsing on top of the car. And the man said to him, what's that, Mike? And Gamble said, oh, what's the script? And the man said, script, script, script. Uh, you, uh, Gamble said, yeah, it's the, it's the film we're rehearsing. And, uh, and the man said, you're an actor, Mike. <laughs> and Gammon said, yes. And the man said, well, bloody hell, I thought you was the maintenance man. <laughs> <laughs> then think about religious belief. Um, think of what people manage to believe in terms of religion, not your religious beliefs, of course, which are entirely, entirely reasonable. But when you think about other people's religious beliefs, they manage to believe the most preposterous things. I would like to say that I was immune to this, uh, uh, this kind of natural credulity. Uh, but I have to confess, experience has forced me to recognize that I'm not. Um, I once read a play called uh, Copenhagen about a meeting between two um, 
atomic physicists, uh, Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg, and in the play, uh, it talked about um, the end of the war when the German nuclear uh, physicists were rounded up and interned in a house called Farm Hall in Huntingdonshire in England. And um, during the run of the play, I got a letter from a Mrs. Celia Reese Evans in Chiswick, who said, um, my husband and I came to see your play last night. And she said, um, it was our wedding anniversary, and my husband had tried to get tickets for Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> but it was sold out, so we came to see your play instead. And she said, and very boring it was. <laughs> Until halfway through Act One, uh, I realized that one of the actors was talking about Farm Hall. She said, immediately my interest was aroused because my husband and I rented Farm Hall after the war. And we hadn't heard anything about this history of people being interned there or whatever. But she said, while we were there, we did some work on the house and we had the floorboards taken up. And under the floorboards, I found a lot of papers written in some strange language. Uh, well, most of them, he said, had been eaten by the dog over the years or got lost somehow. But one or two of them uh, remain, and I thought you might be interested. Was I interested? Um, I looked at these papers, and uh, the reason she couldn't understand them was that they were written in German, handwritten in German. And they'd been very damaged by water. Uh, it was very difficult to make any sense of them at all. Well, I struggled and struggled and struggled. Um, one of the difficulties was that there were so many elementary mistakes in the German and so many bits that didn't seem to fit in with the rest of the text. But in the end, what it seemed to me they were was not uh, how to make an atomic bomb, but the instructions for setting up a table tennis table. <laughs> So, did I, at this point, uh, give up? Not at all. I was tremendously intrigued. I wrote back to Mrs. Celia Reese Evans and said, uh, do you have any more papers? Um, well, she did, and she wanted money for them. Um, I cut a long, long and very painful story short. I discovered eventually that uh, these papers were written not by German nuclear physicists, uh, but by David Burke, who was the actor playing Niels Bohr. <laughs> and he turned out to be a serial hoaxer. <laughs> um, and he had something in common with my character, Oliver Fox, because he said he always warned people uh, with one of his hoaxes. He always said, but surely this must be a hoax. And people always said, no, no, if you'd seen <laughs> the papers, you would realize it couldn't possibly be a hoax. And Oliver Fox, at one point, uh, tries to warn people that the whole thing's a hoax, and no one believes him for a moment. Uh, my favorite hoax of, uh, of um, David Burke's was he was appearing in a play uh, in a studio theater somewhere where the audience sat very close to the stage. And at some point in this play, a character sat in a rocking chair at the front of the stage looking through uh, an album of uh, family photographs. And during rehearsals, one of the stage management went out, scoured the local junk shops, and found a discarded um, family photograph album. And that became the prop in the play. Well, during the run of the play, the actress playing the part got a letter from a Mrs. Celia Reese Evans in Chiswick. <laughs> and Mrs. Celia Reese Evans said, um, my husband and I went out last night to celebrate our wedding anniversary. We tried to get tickets for Phantom of the Opera, <laughs> but it was sold out, so we came to see your play instead. And very boring it was. <laughs> Until we got to the bit in the middle of Act One, where the lady sat in the rocking chair at the front of the stage looking at an, an album of family photographs. And she said, and I suddenly realized that that was our old album of photographs <laughs> that got lost years ago. We've been searching for ever since. She said, well, I realize um, I can't ask you to give it back because you want to keep it as a prop now, but I have bought 12 tickets for the Saturday night performance of the play in row A, and I'm going to bring the entire family. <laughs> um, and she said, I wonder if you could just help me a little. I wonder if when you get to the bit where you look through the family album, you could turn it around a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, back to the practical question <laughs> that we began with. How far does Oliver Fox manage to get with his preposterous uh, hoax? Uh, well, the answer is very simple. It's 278 pages. <laughs> Only one thing more before we um, widen this out and get some questions from the audience, and I hope get some more stories I can use at future events. Um, and that's a challenge. Uh, there is a ludic element in this book, uh, which is what literary scholars call it when the author is messing around. I'm not quite sure what the noun from ludic is, whether it's ludism or ludicity or lewdness. Oh, perhaps not lewdness. Um, anyway, uh, I have put a private joke into this book to amuse myself. Um, it's seven words long, and to identify it, all you need to have done is to have read my complete works. <laughs> um, if you're not as familiar with my work as I might have hoped, all you need to do uh, to take up this challenge and identify the seven words which I quoted from somewhere else is to go to the bookstall afterwards and buy my ten previous novels and my fifteen plays to be on the safe side have a quick read of them and come and see me in the signing queue afterwards. Um, and if you've got the right answer, I will send you a bottle of champagne. And if that doesn't give you quite long enough to read the works, uh, write to me, care of Faber, and if you're the first person with the correct answer, I will send you the champagne. Well, none of us actually know whether you're the real Michael Frayn or not now. That we, when you came in, we thought you were, but now we don't know. But you do give a fantastic uh, talk, and for that, very many thanks. It was very entertaining. And if you're not the real Michael Frayn, then I think perhaps he should re resign and retire and hand over to, to you instead, because uh, he wouldn't do it as well. And, of course, if you buy all those books, the champagne will be but small pleasure uh, in comparison to the pleasure of reading the, the books and the... Um, Plays. I want to ask you a serious question because a lot of that very um, entertaining talk you just given was about about plays, including your your own plays. You're you're noted as a playwright as well as a, a novelist. Is the process of writing the two very different? I mean, it, it struck me reading this that there are there's long conversations which which would dramatise very easily. Uh, well, I'm not writing a play version of it. I think it'd be quite difficult. Uh, but there is some interest in the film and. Uh, when I was away on holiday this year, instead of being on holiday, all I could think about was how to solve the various difficulties, which are quite considerable, of, of making a film after this. So if um, interest does, uh, um, if it does become serious, I might write the screenplay. If anyone here has got uh, the odd million pounds they want to invest in a risky enterprise, uh, let me know. Uh, one of the things you didn't say about the book is that it's also um, it's in the tradition of academic novels, isn't it? Because... Um, Norman Wilfrid is an academic, and there's a lot of play on academic pomposity and absurdity. Was, was that a definite inspiration, or was it really all down to sort of changing places in this book? Um, I, I can't remember how, uh, how the story developed in my mind. Now, it did occur to me at one point that I just reread um, Chrome Yellow, and, um, or Point Counterpoint, by Aldous Huxley which I hadn't read since I was a young man. And when I was uh, 19, 20, 21, I spent a lot of time uh, under the influence of Huxley trying to write a country house novel. Well, I'd never been in a country house at the time. I'd never even been in an empty National Trust country house. Um, and it occurred to me that what I've written here is a kind of uh, country house novel. At last, I've caught up with my childhood ambition. Uh, except it takes place in lots of different places, doesn't it, with? Well, the country house novel takes place in, in some great country house over, over a weekend with a lot of grand people having grand conversations together. And, and you do puncture an awful lot of people along the way, don't you? You've got quite a lot of attacks on Americans, haven't you? Well, uh, there are a lot of Americans, a lot of English people in it, uh, a lot of Greeks, none of them come out, or Russian, uh, none of them come out terribly well, do they? I'm not sure the Americans come out any worse than anybody else. And, and it's also a romantic comedy, isn't it? Do you do... There's quite a lot of love in it. Or perhaps, perhaps. Uh, well, love might be putting it a bit... Uh, 
I'm a bit strong. Pursuit of love. <laughs> Certainly of sex, in it, I should say. Or sexual attraction. There's no uh, overt sex. And, and like a play, a lot of it, and I think like your brilliant talk, a lot of it depends on timing, doesn't it? Yeah. Is, is, that, is that an important thing that you have to plot very carefully? I mean, people not being where they should be when they say they will be. When you say timing, you mean uh, the timing of particular lines or the arrangement of events? In, the in the plotting is very complex because yeah. when Oliver Fox is, is uh, he's being pursued by various people along the way, and it's important that they're not where they should be when they say they are. Yeah. So there's a lot of odd coincidences, and I wondered if that's a very difficult thing to, to put together and plot. Yes, I mean, the plot, I should have to say, is entirely artificial uh, and fast. It, I mean, it's an attempt to see whether you can write fast as a novel, not just as a play. Um, and fast is a very stylized form, but it does catch something about the reality of life. And when I first began to write farces, um, serious interviewers would say to me, why do you write farces, Mr. Frame? Why don't you write about life as it really is? And I couldn't imagine... <laughs> I can't imagine what their lives were like. <laughs> well, of course, in farce, that, that kind of series of escalating disaster with which we're all, which I, at any rate, am familiar, maybe other people here are better organized than I am, um, uh, is stylized uh, into an impossible degree. But it is, it, it, but all art, after all, is stylization. And all art is, is pushing something further than it is in life. It's, uh, uh, if it's uh, about love or uh, disaster or fear or whatever it is, pushing all the feelings one has in life a little bit further. I think we should take some questions from the um, floor, so if the house lights could, could come up and we've got a gentleman very quick with his arm up here. Uh, Michael, that's extremely entertaining. I may say I've already read your book several times and uh, I think I think you probably are Michael Frayne. But the only, qu the only question I have is uh, regarding buying all the other works of yours, before I do this very quickly, I need to know that what you send me as a bottle of champagne is, in fact, not just sparkling wine. <laughs> I will tell you what it is. It's the Wine Society Champagne, which is really good champagne. It's what I would drink myself. But I had a small glass off when I got on the long list for the uh, booker. So you're passing on the wine that somebody else sent you? You're, it's called re-gifting, isn't it? No, it's my own Wine Society wine that I have a small glass of to celebrate. No, getting on the long list doesn't involve you getting any champagne or money or anything. It's all purely words. Uh, Andrew Franklin's referred to the complexity of the plotting in Skios, and indeed it is... Um, a work of art. I just wonder if it's not asking you to reveal too many of the trade secrets. How physically do you manage a plot that complicated with threads of it crossing, just failing to cross, all, and so on? Do you have a diagram? Do you have... I mean, how physically do you manage a work that complex? Um, when I first started writing farces for stage, I tried having a little stage with little uh, plastic figures to represent the different characters. But the trouble is, the, uh, the situation changes faster than you can change the characters on the stage. So the situation you're looking at there is always uh, behind what the situation it, you're writing is. And the only practical way of doing it, I'm afraid, is to carry it all in your head. <laughs> there are probably some software you can get somewhere. <laughs> I come to think about it. But there must be an elaborate process then of checking that you don't have the person turning up earlier than they should do in order to spoil that particular plot development or being in, particularly with Oliver, being in two places at once or... Well, you have a certain amount of control over them if they show signs of turning up too early. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell them to go away and come back later. <laughs> or you can trip them up or have something happen to them. There's a question here. Uh, Raymond Chandler famously couldn't remember who had killed one of his characters when the filmmakers uh, asked him about it. I think it was the big sleep. Uh, have, has anyone ever caught you out with that in one of your <laughs> plays or novels? <laughs> um, you've certainly been caught out many times by editors. <laughs> 
Um, it's one of the wonderful things that editors do is they pick up discrepancies in the, in the text. And, uh, and quite often, um, you find that uh, someone whose eyes were blue in uh, chapter 3 have gone brown by the time you've got to chapter 17. It's very difficult to remember. I mean, um, it takes a long time to write a book, and my memory is not very good. Um, but editors, good editors, do pick you up on this kind of thing. And I've got a particular, very good editor at Faber, but I've got a particularly acerbic editor in New York. American editors are famously tough and difficult. In fact, she is British, but she's lived in America and worked as an American editor for so long that she's got more like an American editor than American editors are. And she's always picking up uh, little discrepancies and also saying things like, but this isn't funny. <laughs> Which my... Uh, British editor is far too polite ever to say it. Do the discrepancies matter? Well, I think if you're trying to work out, um, trying to work out a complex plot like this, glaring discrepancies, uh, glaring anomalies uh, would matter. Yeah, I mean, I think there probably still are discrepancies and anomalies left in it. Maybe somebody's going to point them out in a moment. Um, but minor ones probably don't, but, but large ones probably do. But uh, they also matter because, you know, however minor the discrepancy is, somebody's going to write you a letter about it, a reader, and you're going to have to reply to it. Question here. I wonder if I missed something. Is headlong funny? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think you're asking the wrong person. Um, <laughs> Not for me to say. Uh, there, there's the story. Um, you might find bits of it funny, other bits you might find not find funny. And I can imagine some people not finding any of it funny. Um, humor is a very, very personal thing. There's no way you can write anything funny that uh, everyone finds funny all the time. Does your American editor have a sense of humor? Oh, yes. No, she's very good. No, she's absolutely wonderful editor to have because she does challenge you and uh, you are forced to argue about things. But it's, it's not... I mean, you're not... Even when you're being funny, I think it's a very interesting question, you're not... I mean, it's not just a comic novel, is it? And you can sacrifice more serious things in the novel just to being funny and maybe that's too high a price to pay sometimes. Well, I think um, comedy is basically serious, isn't it? Um, I mean, if there weren't something serious at issue, um, it wouldn't be funny. You've got to feel that uh, people are really, the characters are really risking making fools of themselves or really uh, doing something ridiculous, having real feelings. Otherwise, it's of, it's of no interest. And uh, this always a difficulty with, uh, with playing farce in the theatre is that some directors think that what farce is is something being very clever, you know, people very cleverly tumbling about and falling through doors just at the right moment. But... Um, farce is always much funnier if you play it for real, as if it was a real serious play, and it just happens to be the case that someone comes through the door at the, at the wrong moment. And it's always much better. The first time Noisezov was done in Russia was back in Soviet times, uh, and they didn't play, they had never played farce in Moscow. They didn't know how to do it. So what did they do? They just did it the way they did any other play. They rehearsed for two years. <laughs> Uh, and they thought, well, what's this play about? It's about a, a company of actors uh, who are probably not very good as characters, and they're putting on a play that doesn't sound very good. Uh, but obviously, they're trying to do their best with it. They're, I mean, they're professional actors, the characters in the play, and they'd be trying to make the best shot they could at this play. So they did it seriously, and the result was it was very funny indeed. I mean, it was like <laughs> watching uh, some Chekhov on speed. <laughs> When you, when you write a play, you go along the first night and you get some immediate sense of what the audience think of it. When you write a novel, it goes out there, it's well received by the critics or it isn't, and then, then you have a wall of silence. Does that difference in response to the art form matter? Yes, it's, um, it's wonderful when, uh, if you write a comedy and people laugh at it and find it funny, and it's very nice uh, just hearing people laugh at something you've written. Uh, but then the converse also applies, that when you've written something funny and people don't laugh at it, it's extremely painful. And I've written one or two plays uh, which were intended as funny and which people didn't laugh at. And um, the pain of, of those is probably stronger than the joy of the successes. Um, and it's true that when you write a, a book, you don't have to watch to see whether the people are enjoying it or not. 
but you don't get the immediacy of response. I've got a, a friend called uh, Stanley Price, who used to be a novelist. And um, one day he was sitting on a tube train on the Piccadilly line, and he realized the man opposite was reading one of his books. So he watched covertly in fascination. And after two or three stops, the man laughed. Other two or three stops, and the man laughed again. Well, Stanley was so taken with this that he stayed on right to the end of the line <laughs> and didn't get off to a cock foster's. And then turned to writing plays because he wanted, he was so taken with the idea of someone seeing someone actually laugh at what he'd written. And maybe this sort of event, there's a gentleman over there with a question, maybe this sort of event is how you get feedback on, on the books. C keep your hand up a second. Down a bit. Left a bit. <laughs> I enjoyed the book a lot, and thanks for that. And one of the uh, principal characters, Dr. Wilfred Norman, comes to give lectures frequently and finds a great sense of ennui. He doesn't like it at all. He's bored with it. And it did occur to me as I was reading the book that it's possible that the real Michael Frayn felt the same way. And I wondered if that's why he'd sent you along today instead. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, if uh, it's true that the the real Dr. Norman Wilfred has done has given this lecture, which is on scientometrics. Incidentally, I've got a lot of compliments from uh, readers on my invention of scientometrics, which are completely undeserved because it's a real topic. <laughs> it's a real subject. I actually read a book on scientometrics before. It's the, it's the scientific measurement of science. I read a book on it beforehand. Uh, but he has uh, given this same lecture around the world so many times, reading out the text, that he is getting a bit, uh, a bit blasé about it. Uh, well, it helps if you don't have uh, a text, um, because it's more frightening. It keeps you on your toes. But it's also, it helps if you have such a nice audience as this. I'm afraid I think that is the perfect place to... Um, I'm really sorry to stop. I don't know if anything that we've heard is true. None of, us, none of us know if it was Michael Frayn, but it was both very funny, and I think in between the humour and uh, the farce of some of the things that you said, there was, there was some uh, profound reflections as well on identity, on writing, and uh, on this novel. For those of you who've read it, you must uh, tell your friends about it, because it is very funny. And for those of you who haven't, you have the chance to join us in the signing tent, which is... Which way is it? I always forget. Perfect. It's either that way or that way. And don't, f don't forget the champagne. <laughs> So do please come and join us, and whoever this gentleman is, a big round of applause for him, please. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.